All right, good and welcome once again to our discipleship class. This is class number eight, and um, time is moving on. Praise God. Jesus said in the Word that if we're going to do something for God, it's, we better get it done. Amen. And so uh, I am thankful for you tonight. I'm thankful that you are joining with us, either live right now or be watching later online. I want to give a shout out to a few groups. First of all, there's a men's group and a women's group at the Foundry Ministries that are watching this class. Uh, they watch it recorded. They're not watching with us live. And so, man, how I love those men and women. And, and a lot of the ones that are participating in this class, they, they are leaders there uh, among the uh, participant population. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, know how much uh, Pastor Mark loves you and how much I appreciate you. Um, after a long, hard day and week, taking the time out of what is already a busy schedule to uh, invest in yourself and invest in the kingdom to hear and receive uh, these classes. Also, shout out uh, to Heritage Christian Center over in Kenya, uh, led by our beautiful Pastor Cornelius. And um, there's a group there that uh, watch this class as their Sunday school uh, on Sunday mornings. And so, again... Uh, as you guys are tuning in, know that, know that we love you and are thankful for you, as well as uh, many other folks uh, here locally, as well as in other states uh, and locations. Praise God. Let's, uh, let's pray tonight, and we will uh, get started. Father, thank you uh, for all that you've done for us and all that you've given to us. And Lord, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about one of the greatest gifts uh, that you have ever given to us, and that is uh, your word. And so, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the, for the power and life that's in your word. Lord, for the difference that your word makes in our lives when we receive it, when we uh, allow it to, to, to come into our hearts and to begin to take uh, root in our lives, begin to alter the way we think and, and, and the way we feel and our, and our worldview and the way we see ourselves, the way we see people around us. And um, Father, your word is, is such a beautiful and precious an amazing treasure and I pray Father tonight that no matter how much we love it and treasure it right now that by the time we're done here and in an hour plus Father from now that we will love it and treasure it and prioritize it even more uh, than we ever have uh, before in our lives. Again Father we we give you thanks uh, for all those who are joining us tonight Lord the groups that we mentioned but also Father we welcome those who have recently registered and are new to the class. Uh, we welcome them in here at this uh, class number eight point, And we thank you, Father, for uh, their participation. Lord, may your name be exalted above all. Uh, we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. He is ultimately our teacher. He leads us and guides us into the truth. Father, I humble myself before you, and I ask that my spirit, soul, and body become a portal through which your wisdom can pass from eternity into time and space. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my lips. And Father, that people's lives would be changed for your glory tonight because of this class. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. All right, so last night we began uh, a new section, and I say a new section, it's really based on the same passages out of 2 Corinthians, um, but a week before last we talked about the ministry of reconciliation, and so tonight we're continuing our study on what the Bible calls the Word of Reconciliation. So this is the Word of Reconciliation Part 2. And um, I'm leaving this opening slide up on purpose for a few minutes because I try to put, you know, some type of subheading or something in here 
so that when you are looking for these classes online, maybe you want to go back to something that you remember, something in your notes, uh, that there would be something in the title that would, would help trigger that. And so tonight we're going to be focusing on rightly dividing and skillfully applying. Rightly dividing and skillfully applying. And as is always the case, that's a, that's a pretty big agenda. Uh, we may not get to the skillfully applying part tonight, but at least we're going to make a run at it. Amen. All right, so I hope that you're settled in wherever you are. I've got your Bible, maybe notebook, pad, pen uh, handy. Um, if you haven't already, maybe invite somebody to, to come jump online with us. And um, tonight we're going to be talking about the word of reconciliation, how to rightly divide it and skillfully apply it. In way of review, we've said that every born-again believer has been called to do the work of the ministry. We've also established this point uh, in weeks past, just mentioning it again tonight. Ministering to others is necessary for spiritual growth and development. Um, if you refuse to do it, um, it will put a cap on your spiritual growth and uh, will become a, a, a hindrance uh, uh, to you being able to grow and develop beyond that point. All right, our first passage of the night is one that we've already looked at a couple of times but if you have your Bibles go with me to 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 18 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 18 now uh, in the past two classes we have uh, read uh, many verses um, from uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 we read them in the New King James Version and then we also read them in the Passion Translation and we've said a few things about those verses. We've said, first of all, drawing your attention to all the different important teachings from the Bible that intersect in, in those group of verses. Um, and then we've also uh, said that those verses provide basically the foundation, the biblical precedent, if you will, um, for these classes and what they're all about. And so we're going to forego reading all of those again tonight. We may still do it a few more times in the future, but I want to dive right in to our subject at hand. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, by quick way of review, we said that the ministry of reconciliation, which, by the way, is the ministry that every born-again believer has been called to, has been assigned, has been given, we said that there are two key branches to the ministry of reconciliation. We have the first branch, which is the new birth, and then the second branch, which is uh, discipleship. Both of these extremely important, obviously nothing more important than someone being born again, but then once a person's born again, that's not uh, an end in and of itself, but the new birth is a doorway into a whole new way of life. And discipleship is the process by which we grow up into who we became the day we became this new creation. So two branches of the ministry of reconciliation. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation and have, and have been called to both branches, right? And so we have to tell people the gospel message in order for them to have the opportunity to be born again. And then we have to take the truth from the Word of God and help uh, men and women as we do so ourselves. Remember, it takes a disciple to make a disciple, uh, bring their thinking into alignment, their opinions of themselves, of God, of, 
of money, family, marriage, sex, all the things that the Bible speaks of, that we would bring our thoughts and our mindsets and our attitudes into alignment with what the Word of God has to say about these things. I made a statement last week, I'm going to make it again, and we will build on it as we continue to progress. But something happened to you when you, was born, that when you were born again that your mind and thinking hasn't caught up with yet. You became something through the new birth that you have not yet realized. And as one of the ways you've heard me define discipleship in the past, discipleship is finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. So through the new birth you became something. Discipleship is the process of your mind being renewed. In other words, you begin to see yourself in light of who you became the day you were born again as opposed to what many people unfortunately do and that's to continue to see themselves in light of the old person they were instead of the new person that they became. Now, the second part uh, of the word of reconciliation is what we're going to be uh, diving into tonight. And notice the Bible says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, and because we've been reconciled to God so thoroughly, we're now able to be used by God to help others be reconciled to Him and in order for us to be effective in this ministry, in this assignment, in this calling, Father God has given to us the word of reconciliation. We said last week the word of reconciliation is just a very beautiful and poetic way of saying, you know, the Bible. It's, 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 it's the word of God. And this is what we've been given uh, to do what it is that we have been called to do. Um, so another verse we looked at last week, I'll put it up on the screen right quick. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of reconciliation, the word of God, it's alive. It has power in it. It has the power of God residing within it. And we see that it's able to penetrate. It's able to separate the part of you, that spirit, from the part of you, that soul, all the way to the physical body and um, where life springs forth in the physical body, that's in the marrow of the bone. Remember we looked last week at the passage in Proverbs 4 where it says the word of God is life to those that find it and even health to their flesh. Okay. Then we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. And here it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we said that Scripture is given by inspiration. We looked at some things from one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, Dr. Rick Renner, what he had to say about breaking down this word uh, uh, inspiration and how it means to be God-breathed. I'm not going to try to go back over all of that. Um, but we see that, that Scripture is given. It's a gift. It's a gift inspired by God. And we see that this gift is beneficial, it's profitable. And it's beneficial and profitable for many different things. Doctrine, you know, doctrine is, is sound teaching. Doctrine is you know, knowing what time it is. Doctrine is knowing what is truth, like we talked about on last week's class. It's all, also profitable, beneficial for reproof. It'll show you where you're wrong uh, when you don't know that you're wrong. But the same Bible, the same word that'll show you what's wrong in your life will also serve to correct it as well. So it doesn't just point out an error, it has the power to, to show us the error, to reveal it to us, but then also to correct it. And then for instruction in righteousness. You became righteous the day you were born again. It's back to what we said a moment ago. Um, you became something through the new birth 
that your mind and thinking and ultimately lifestyle is still catching up with. So you became righteous. The Word of God will give you instructions to go along with the righteousness you became. But then as we kind of move on from here tonight, that the man of God may be complete. Okay, That the man of God may be complete. Remember our passage we've looked at now, I guess, three or four times, that Father's desire is for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's one thing to be born again. It's another thing to be growing, progressively increasing in the knowledge of God's truth. And so the more of God's truth we have in our lives, the more we're going to live a complete life. The, the, the more we're going to experience not just the, the, the eternal life that has already been given to our spirit, but we're going to, how about experiencing and enjoying things like a sound mind and, and uh, you know, not, be, not being ruled by our emotions or feelings, uh, even soundness in our, in our physical body. Uh, so again, when he's talking about that the man of God may be complete, he's talking about every aspect of, of your life and, and existence, your relationships, your finances. Um, j- again, just the, the complete picture of your life. And then that last part, it's profitable for equipping the man of God um, thoroughly. Thoroughly. To, to be thoroughly equipped means that there's nothing lacking. Uh, if, if, if you have an employee, let's say you own a business, you have an employee, you may have some new guys that are hard workers, but you know there's just certain things you don't ask them to do because they, they don't know how to do it yet, or maybe they're not as skilled at it or, or you know, as proficient at it as, as someone else you know, that you would ask to do the job. So when he's talking about being equipped, he's not just saying that we're equipped. Notice that word thoroughly, thoroughly equipped. Someone who is thoroughly equipped for every good work means that they can handle any with the Lord I'm not I'm not talking about on them you know by ourselves without the Lord we're nothing without him Jesus said he couldn't do anything without without his father and so who are we to think that we can do anything without him but when he says thoroughly equipped for every good work this means that you know we're able to minister to and help people no matter what the situation is in their life no matter how serious the problem may seem um, we have the answers that they need because we've been equipped with the word of God to answer uh, those situations and issues and help them in their lives. So let's just for a moment, let's look at this word equipped, okay? Equipped means competent, proficient, skilled, and capable. I like that. Amen. So that the man of God, and that's men with a womb and womb in, men with a womb, okay? I'm sorry, men without a womb and men with a womb. That's a woman and a man. So it means mankind here. He's not just using gender. He's talking about humankind, all right? So if you didn't pick, let me go back through that one more time. You have a man, and then you have a man with a womb. And that's what we would call a womb man, a woman, all right? So equipped means, you know, competent, proficient, skilled, and capable. So the Word of God is able to make you competent, proficient, skilled, and capable at performing the ministry of reconciliation. Now, just to break it down and spell it out even further for you, the new birth qualifies you for the ministry of reconciliation. You know, you may have from time to time people ask you, you know, what qualifies you uh, to speak on God's behalf? Or what qualifies you uh, to try and minister to somebody else? Well, I'll tell you what qualifies you. It's real simple. The new birth, because you've been born again, you are now qualified to do the work of the ministry or the ministry specifically of reconciliation. 
So it's the new birth that qualifies you, but it's the Word of God. That's what makes you competent, proficient, skilled, and capable to do the ministry of reconciliation. All right? So think about it then. We cannot do the ministry of reconciliation without the Word of reconciliation. And, and, and it would be silly for us to try this, but there are a lot of people who do. There's, there are a lot of people who try to minister to other people without using the Word of God. There are a lot of people who even try to you know, help people change their lives, but they do it you know, through all kinds of motivation and psychology and philosophy and this and that. Um, but, but again, none of that uh, can, can produce the radical transformation that the Word of God can produce in our lives through the new birth and discipleship. So ministers of reconciliation cannot do the ministry of reconciliation without the word of reconciliation. And I beg of you, please, don't even try it. All right. So we can also conclude from this that the more we know the word of reconciliation, the more effective we will be in the ministry of reconciliation. So it's one thing to be given the ministry of reconciliation. It's another thing to be effective. It's, it's, an, it, it's one thing to, you know, Father God gave it to you. If you've been born again, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now it becomes a matter of how do we be effective? How do we produce results? H- how do we make a difference uh, in this ministry of reconciliation? Well, because the word of reconciliation is how we're effective, the more we know, the more we grow, uh, the more we understand the word of God, uh, the, 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 the word of reconciliation the more effective we will be in the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this brings me uh, to uh, another important point. And I had uh, someone that that, uh, watched the class last week, and uh, this is a a very brilliant brother. He he has uh, master's degrees in theology, and and, um, and, and he he asked some great questions. You can always tell... Uh, a lot about somebody and how they're growing by the questions that they ask. And this brother asked great questions. But he was, he was talking about when Jesus told the religious leaders, um, if you remember, he, he said to them, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. He says, but you don't understand that all of those scriptures are pointing to me, pointing to Jesus. And, and so, you know, there, there are people who know the Bible but don't know God. And I know that's hard for us to understand, but it's, it's a blindness. Remember that knowledge puffs up. Uh, and so you can know a lot about something and be prideful. And if you remember, the people who murdered Jesus knew the Bible, but they didn't know or recognize Jesus when he was standing right there in front of them. Okay, So you've, you've got then this attitude of the heart we know from Scripture that God resists the prideful, but He gives grace to the humble. And so when we say, know the Word of God, or knowing the Bible, uh, this phrase is accurate, but it's too vague for our discussion. Um, so here is what I mean when I say knowing the Bible. Right. So, knowing the Bible means we must learn to, and I'm going to give you two things, all right? You probably already figured them out from the title tonight. Knowing means we must learn to rightly divide the Word of God, rightly divide the Word of God, and then skillfully apply the Word of God. 
So when we talk about growing in our knowledge of the Word, our knowing the Bible puts us in a better position to be more effective to do the, 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 the work of the ministry. Um, we don't just mean uh, having some basic understanding of, of what the Bible says. For that matter, the people that murdered Jesus, the religious leaders that murdered Jesus, some of them could quote the entire Old Testament backwards. Okay? So they knew the Bible. But notice what they were unable to do. They were unable to rightly divide the Word of God and they were unable to skillfully apply it. Because Jesus Himself was standing right in front of them. The Scriptures that they had committed to memory right, was in front of them uh, in, in bodily form. Uh, all the prophecies, all the things that pointed directly to Him. They were the most um, equipped people on planet Earth to recognize Jesus. Uh, but they had no clue who he was. Then you take people who literally uh, cannot read and write, uh, prostitutes, drunkards, uh, you know, people that couldn't be any further away from God, they recognize Jesus immediately because of the attitude of their heart. So when I say know the Bible, that can be daunting when you consider the Bible's 66 books. There's a lot of stuff in there, and, and I don't want that to overwhelm you if you're sitting here listening to this thinking, you know, that's a bummer, dude, because if me being effective to minister to other people means knowing the Bible, it may take me 20 years to know the Bible. Well, listen to me, please. We're all learning. And the Bible says, if any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. So I'm thankful that I know more about things today than I knew last week and the week before that. But again, it's not having this comprehensive knowledge of everything between Genesis and Revelation. It's knowing the Bible to the point that you have the ability to rightly divide it and skillfully apply it both to your life and to the lives of other people. So, as we've already um, you know, presented in the title, these are the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. So, let me get a sip of water here. So, let's, uh, let's go into the first one of these. Rightly dividing the Word of God. Rightly dividing the Word of God. We get this phrase from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 15. We looked at this passage last week. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So see, once again, we, we see this connection between studying the Word of God and, 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 a, and a worker that's carrying his weight, a workman that's doing his job, a, 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 a uh, someone that's in, engaged in doing good works, um, and, and they have nothing to be ashamed of. They're actually producing fruit. They're being effective. But then we see that last phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So this, and stay with me for a minute, because this is where a lot of people uh, find themselves in error, misunderstanding the Word of God, okay? Um, unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of people who get behind pulpits and preach to a lot of people that, that, that don't know how to rightly divide uh, the Word of Truth. And there's certain reasons for that. Some people are afraid to do it. Some people don't feel like it should be done, even though the Bible right here tells us that we have to rightly divide the Word of God. Now, when we say divide the Word of God, he didn't say divide it, he said rightly or correctly divide it. So it's one thing to divide it one part from another, 
Um, it's another thing to rightly divide it. Okay? Let me give you an example of dividing it incorrectly. The Bible says there is no God. Okay? So what did I do? I just took a verse and I cut it off from everything else the Bible has to say. Right? Well, the Bible does say, the Bible does say there is no God. But if we're going to rightly divide that verse, this is what the whole verse says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay? So, and that's just a simple uh, you know, way of illustrating uh, this. Um, you know, these things get much deeper and, and much more significant, and unfortunately the consequences much more severe. Right? So, before we can ever do it correctly or rightly, we got to understand what it means in the first place to divide the word of truth, to rightly divide the word of truth. So this word means what you probably think that it means. Uh, divide means to cut or divide. Uh, it, it also uh, carries with it the idea of handling correctly and skillfully. Handling correctly and skillfully. Let me give you an excerpt from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. It's a very long verse. I don't want to try to give explanation all that verse tonight. But the excerpt from 2 Corinthians 4, 2 says, Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully. So there's a right way to handle the Word of God, and there's a, an incorrect way to handle the Word of God. We want to make sure we're handling it correctly. It's, it's very important. Especially, not it's important for our individual personal lives uh, and well-being, but we're talking. Remember about going beyond that now, where we're going to try to help somebody else. So we want to make sure that what we're telling them is correct and is accurate. Now, the classic mistake that many people make when it comes to rightly dividing the Word of God is they fail to divide it but instead they try to balance it, okay? And, and what I mean by balancing it is, and here again is an example, uh, if you've ever had a pastor uh, that would preach, you know, life and, and health and, and positive, God is for you, all of that on a Sunday morning, then turn around that same night or the next Sunday and talk about how God is out to get you, and God is trying to teach you a lesson. Um, the, the idea is that you know you have you have good and evil, you have right and wrong, you have works and grace, and it's so we don't want to spend too much time teaching on grace if if we don't also talk about you know works. And so instead of dividing one from the other, the the classic mistake is this effort to try to balance the two and, and give both the teachings of the Old Testament and the Old System uh, you know, the same amount of time as we give the New System and the New Testament. Now some of you may be listening to this, especially if, I, if there's pastors and ministers listening to this, and you may, you may say, well, that's what they taught me in Bible college, Pastor Mark. Are you saying something is wrong with that? I am saying something is wrong with that, and I'm asking you to please not be offended but to just stay with me for a moment. So if, and I'm, I'm holding in my hand, you know, uh, you know the, the Word of God, uh, a copy of 
uh, God's Holy Bible. And if His Holy Bible tells me to rightly divide it, in other words, if I'm going to take a knife to this and I'm going to make a division, in other words, I'm going to separate one part from the other, okay? And uh, I, I can only imagine, you know, I guess a surgeon probably practices on, on cadavers, and before cadavers, probably, uh, you know, pigs and, and, and things of this nature. But I can only imagine, I, I had a dream at one point when I was a kid of being a doctor, a surgeon. So I can imagine, you know, the first time their, their hand may be, you know, trying to tremble on them a little bit. Obviously, we want to get over that before they go to a live human. But the point I'm trying to make is, and, and maybe being silly doing it, is, you know, maybe your hand's trembling a little bit if you're fixing to take a knife to the Bible and cut it, separating one part or entity from another part or entity. But think about it for a minute. It's not a trick question, and it's not a hard question. If you're going to take a knife to this and make the first cut, where are you going to make the cut? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. You're going to cut it down the middle. When I say middle, I don't mean, you know, the exact middle word. I'm talking about down the middle from the New Testament to the Old Testament. In other words, I didn't say that correctly. Um, if, if this whole book you know, is represented by my hands, Old Testament, New Testament, they're joined together in a book. If I'm going to make a cut and separate one part from the other, the first cut I'm going to make is to separate the old from the new. All right? Separate the old from the new. Now, let's take a deep breath because this is the cut that so many people fail to make. And because they fail to make it, they're trying to operate in the New Testament with an Old Testament mindset. And this is what keeps so many people living in defeat, living in condemnation, living in guilt and uh, low self-esteem, poor self-image, anxiety, and stress because they have not yet taken the Holy Spirit's knife and cut down the center, dividing and separating the New Testament from the Old. Now, again, for those of you who are you know, students, Bible students, ministers, what have you, hear me out, please. Jesus said something like this when He began His earthly ministry. He said, I haven't come to do away with the old. I've come to fulfill it. And He said, I'm telling you right now, there will not be one uh, uh, punctuation mark, there will not be one dotting of the I or crossing of the T in the Old Testament that will go unfulfilled by Me. So it's, I'm not telling you to, to, to cut it and throw, throw it away. By, absolutely not, okay? But what we have to understand, and that's what I'm going to strive to show you in, in the next several minutes, is that while the Old Testament is extremely important, um, we don't live under that covenant or that uh, mode of operations uh, with God any longer. Jesus introduced a completely new approach and, and in the process, He replaced the old with the new. And it's the new approach that we're to understand and follow. So let's go back to um, what I said a moment ago. The classic mistake is people try 
to balance the two instead of dividing one from the other. So let me just say a couple of things, uh, if I could, about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. All right? We see that there are these two major divisions, what we call the Old and the New. And generally speaking, the Old Testament is a giant index finger. You know, remember those big fingers, like sometimes you hold them up number one, like for your team. But instead of it holding up number one, think of it as, as a pointer, a giant index finger pointing to Jesus. In other words, the entire Old Testament is filled with every kind of type and shadow and prophecy, explanation. I mean, if you ever get bogged down in Leviticus talking about what a leper has to do in order to be declared clean and cleansed of his leprosy, um, the, the life that will be added to that, uh, what some people otherwise consider a monotonous study, is that all of that, even the blood of that dove and all of these things that it talks about in there, it's speaking of Jesus. It, it's, it's all a beautiful description of who He is, what He's going to do, what He's coming one day to, to accomplish on our behalf. So I, I sometimes explain it this way, okay? I tell people that I am an expositor of the Old Testament and a minister of the New. Now, expositor is just a fancy way of saying an explainer. I am an explainer of the Old Testament, but I am a minister of the New. I don't minister the Old Covenant. I'm not a minister of the Old Testament. I am a minister of the New Testament. I do not lead people and serve people according to the Old Testament rituals and customs. I serve people and lead people according to the New Testament truth and reality that Jesus has introduced. All of those things are an index finger pointing to what we now have available to us, what, what Jesus has now bought and paid for and put in place for us. Okay? So let me try to give you like just some general ideas uh, and then we'll get a little more specific as far as making this major uh, first cut uh, separating and understanding that while both are important, the Old Testament and New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the Old Testament is inspired, the New Testament is inspired. But we use the Old to help us understand the New. And we do not live under the Old System. We now live and function and have fellowship and union and communion and relationship with God according to the principles according to the realities of this New Testament. So, here are some things that have helped me over the years. One of the first things that we see about the Old Testament is that the Old Testament, among other things, exists to prove to us the power of sin. It exists to prove to you and me that we cannot make ourselves right before God in the eyes of God. It exists to prove to us that once something has been defiled and has become unclean and has separated a man or a woman from God, that there is no way apart from some divine intervention from God that we can be right with Him in His eyes before Him again, much less become one with Him again. 
So while the Old Testament demonstrates and illustrates for us the power of sin, the New Testament, on the other hand, demonstrates and illustrates for you and me the power of love. Now a classic way of looking at this, and I, I want to say that I heard Bill Johnson say this. To be honest with you, I, I'm not exactly sure. I listen to a, a lot of different uh, Bible teachers, men and women who teach, but I wrote it down when they said it because it so impacted me because it, it is such a practical way to illustrate, again, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament said that if you touch a leper, simply touching that leper will make you an unclean person. So in the Old Testament, if you touch the leper, you become unclean. In the New Testament, though, if you touch the leper, the leper becomes clean. Do you see the difference there? Okay, And that's, a, that's, that's a, uh, the difference between daylight and dark, right? In the old, you touch the leper, you're defiled. In the new, you touch the leper, the leper's made whole. So this powerfully illustrates the difference between these two realities. So do you see how they're so different from one another in, in the results that they produce? We can't consider them equally and try to balance one from the other. Because if that's the case, you wouldn't know whether to touch a leper or run from him. Are you seeing what I'm saying? All right. All right, I get, I get excited about this. Now, perhaps the, the other, and this is the one we're going to uh, drill, drill down into for a few minutes. The Old Testament was a law-based approach to God, which means it's a, it's a performance-based approach to God. So just to simplify this, in the Old Testament, the, the, the law code that came through Moses, God says, uh, you know, here's the blessing, here's the cursing. And um, if, if you do these things and, 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 and don't do the other things, then you'll be blessed. But if you, you know, don't do these things and participate in certain other things, you'll experience the curse. Okay? So it was all about our individual effort under the Old Testament uh, to make ourselves right before God in the eyes of God by our performance, by our adherence to, um, to the law. And, and, and if you obeyed the commandments, you were right before God in the eyes of God. But if you disobeyed the commandments, you were not. Now, one of the things you have to understand, and this is, this is a result of this effort to balance the two instead of divide them, you have to remember, because this is where a lot of New Testament believers still embrace the Old Testament law-based, performance-based approach, it's because they think, you know, that, um, you know, 7 out of 10 uh, gives them 70% rights, righteousness. <laughs> but it's not a sliding scale. Remember what the Bible says about the law. If you break one, you're guilty of them all. So, let's say you've never committed murder, but if you've told a lie, you're guilty of all, you don't get partial credit for not committing murder. I know that's hard for us to understand, but remember what that law code existed uh, to establish was that we can't do it ourselves. It was, it was given by God uh, expressly to expedite you and me and humanity coming to the conclusion that we cannot do this ourselves. We must have intervention from God. We must have help from Him or we're lost forever. So, 
This is why, again, many people in the New Testament church still live with an Old Testament mindset because they think it's on a sliding scale and as long as we're pretty good, as long as we don't break any of the biggies, that we're okay because of what we've done in our performance. Again, wrong, wrong, wrong. So the Old Testament was a law-based, performance-based approach to being right with God in His eyes, right, right with Him before Him in His eyes. The New Testament, on the other hand, is not about performance. It's about grace. The New Testament is a grace-based, faith-based approach. Okay, A, a grace-based, faith-based approach. All right? So, one of the greatest problems, listen to me very carefully, one of the greatest problems that we have in the body of Christ today is so many people failing to make this shift from what you do, that's the Old Testament approach, to what has been done for you, that's the New Testament approach. In the Old Testament, it was, it was all about what you did to make yourself right. In the New Testament, it's all about what Jesus has done for you and now freely gives to you that you receive by faith. Here's a, here's a passage. I know I've had that one on the board for quite some time. Let's go to Hebrews 13 and 9. Hebrews 13 and 9. It says, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have profited them that have been occupied, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Okay? So, why this verse? Well, the diverse, different, and strange doctrines that he's talking about are these old system, um, you know, rituals, traditions, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, you know, all kind of, you know, diet-imposed restrictions and regulations. And he's saying that it's a good thing for our heart to be established with grace. Um, I think one translation says, in grace. What does he mean by that? that? That we lose this idea that if we eat certain things and refuse to eat other things, that this is going to make God love us more, or this is going to make us more right with God, or, or these kinds of things. Um, the reality tonight is this. Um, if you've been born again, there is nothing you can do to be any more right with God than you are right now. Because you've been given Jesus' righteousness as a gift. Remember, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, remember 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So, it's a good thing for the heart to be established with grace. So many people in the body of Christ today, so many born-again people, their hearts are still established in this performance-based religious approach to a relationship with God. So as we continue to look then at the differences between the old and the new and why we have to divide one from the other, we see that the Old Testament was an outside-in approach. What I mean by that is there were standards that were on the outside of someone and they knew what those lists of standards were, and now their assignment was to try to live up to this basically impossible standard. 
the, the, the New Testament, on the other hand, is not about something on the outside of you that you're trying to live up to, but something that God has done on the inside of you that you're now cooperating together with Him uh, to be revealed through you. So the Old Testament was an outside-in approach. The New Testament is an inside-out approach. So again, if, if, um, if you don't separate one from the other, you will live in a constant state of confusion. Which is it? Here's a classic way to illustrate this point. And from time to time, I mention this in our communion services here at Heritage. In the Old Testament, when Father God gave the law to His people through His servant Moses, when those laws were presented to the people and they agreed with them, then the covenant was ratified with blood and Moses took a laver of animal blood, he dipped a hyssop branch in it. A hyssop branch is is a wooden branch that has almost something like velvet. It, It has some nap, some texture to it. He dipped that hyssop branch into the laver of blood and he began to sling it on the people, literally, I mean it was hitting them on their clothes, on their face, marking their their thoughts, marking their understanding, their memories. Okay, And as he did that, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. So notice, it was hitting them outwardly. Now fast forward to Jesus eating the Last Supper, also the Passover meal, with His disciples. He hands them a cup and He says, this cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant. He didn't say dip your fingers in it and splash it on one another. He said drink it. Drink it. Symbolizing what? Symbolizing what He came to do was not something to be applied to the outside of us in a futile effort to make a change on the inside of us, but it was symbolizing that He was going to do something on the inside of us that would eventually bring change to the outside of us. Fundamental differences between the Old Testament and the New. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And um, we will look at verse 4 and 5. I just put them both up on the screen. Amen. Um, So, I know we visited this time or two already, but... You know, I encourage you to look up the verses. Some of you are more uh, enthralled in taking really good notes, and you just write down the passage. Listen, all that's between you and the Lord, okay? Um, one of the reasons I, I like for you to look up the passage, especially if they're passages you're not familiar with, is that you can highlight and, and become familiar with them, uh, you know, where they're located exactly in your individual copy of the Bible, all right? So, Matthew chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Now, if you're familiar with this this, uh, passage and the context of this passage, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John apart from 
um, the other 12 disciples. So you could say an inner circle within the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they go up onto what we know now as the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up onto this hillside, mountainside, and it's just Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that in that moment, He was transfigured before them. And, and literally, who Jesus was inwardly began to emanate and shine forth from Him outwardly. I've told you before that your spirit and soul is like a hand in a glove. And so Jesus had a physical body. And His physical body, Isaiah, remember, He said there was nothing comely about Him. Not that Jesus was, a, was hard to look at, ugly. That's not, what, that's not what we mean here. It just simply means that he, was, he looked like any and every other person. There wasn't any physical feature about Him that made Him stand out. Uh, you know, more than any. It wasn't that he was eight foot tall. It wasn't that. Are you understand? Um, but who he was inwardly um, shined brilliantly through him outwardly, so much so that Peter, James, and John were privileged to witness this. Now, when this happened, when this happened, Moses and Elijah were standing there with them. So we went from Peter, James, and John, uh, and Jesus. Jesus now literally glowing. This is happening in the daytime. So He's glowing brighter than the sunlight. And we have Moses and Elijah. Let me remind you that the veil between the physical realm and the spiritual realm is very thin. And as Jesus began to emanate His true inward glory, that veil was lifted and there stood Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter gets caught up in the moment, and who could blame him, considering what he just witnessed? And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, it is good for us to be here. As a matter of fact, I believe if, because if you've ever been in the, in the glory of God, if you've ever been in one of those worship services where the, the, the Spirit of God is so real and so tangible that it's almost like you, you can see a, a mist or a haze in the room. Or maybe in, in a personal private time when the Lord is just so near to you and you sense Him so, so powerfully and so wonderfully that you don't want to leave. Okay, I think this is part of, of where Peter was. I believe Peter could have stayed right there for the rest of his life. And so he says, it's so good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So Jesus is glowing, but now a cloud even brighter than Jesus glowing overshadows them. While Peter, in other words, Father God didn't even wait for Jesus to finish. I'm sorry, Father God did not wait for Peter to finish the thought. As he was still speaking, Father God Himself overshadowed them in a bright cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My beloved Son. In other words, He's talking about Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all having a little booth or tabernacle or memorial set up there. Okay, And Father God interrupts Him and says, This is My Son. If you're watching me on video right now, I'm pointing like, Imagine me as Father God, 
and Father God pointing to the top of, of Jesus' head. I'm not saying they saw that finger, but that's, that is, uh, that's the, the, the emphasis here. Uh, that's, in other words, Jesus is singling him out. Okay? Father God didn't say, yes, Peter, that's a great idea, because Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are powerful men, and we need to honor them all with tabernacles. That's not what he said. He said, hold on a second here. This is my son. Meaning what? Meaning he is above Elijah. He is above, he is above Moses. This is my son, and I am well pleased with him. Hear him. Now, think for a minute. The law came through Moses. Elijah is the most, my opinion, you can have a different one, he is the most you know, famous prophet from the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is often referred to as the law and the prophets. So we have Moses representing the law, we have Elijah representing the prophets, and then we have Jesus who we know is the mediator of a better covenant. And when we have those three all standing there together, Father God says, I want you to listen to Jesus. I want you to listen to Him even above and beyond what you would hear from Moses or what you have heard from Elijah. Now, Let's settle down here for a second. Let's take a deep breath because we're going somewhere with this. Don't lose sight of the bigger picture. What's the bigger picture? The bigger picture that we're talking about is rightly dividing the word of truth. And we've said that the, the, the first, and I will even say the most important division cut that you can make, separating one part from the other, is to know how to rightly. Now, let me give you an example. If you say the Old Testament doesn't apply to us, if you say the Old Testament is not valid, if you say the Old Testament is not the inspired Word of God, I heard somebody that I really, 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 really respect, and so I'm not going to call his name, but I heard him say that, that the Proverbs are not the inspired Word of God, that they're, they're the, just the, the wisdom of Solomon. My friend, please, Father God gave wisdom to Solomon, and then He inspired Solomon to provide that wisdom and record it for you and me. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. To, to wrongly, incorrectly handle or divide the Word of God would be to say, we don't pay any attention to the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not for us. The Old Testament is not for today. That would be wrong and it would be an incorrect division. What I'm trying to show you here is that the need to divide it, the difference between the two and why we have to make the division and, and why it has to begin here and that this is the most important one. So, let's go back to it. Father God said, when the law was represented and the prophets were represented and Jesus was represented, Father God singled out Jesus and said, Hear Him, hear Him. Now, if we take that same understanding and we go back to um, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He preached the most important sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, as I often say, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus fell into a rhythm. Um, he fell into a pattern. He fell into a template. And if you notice, I'm trying to illustrate what I mean by that. He, he 
use certain words over and over again and then, and then change them. And the words that he used over and over again were these, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said. He said he, 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 you've heard it said, and then he would talk about what they've heard said. And then he would say, but I say unto you. And then he would tell them some, you know, expound on that, some application, some, some deeper meaning and understanding of that. Let me give you a classic example. Matthew chapter 5. All right? I'll give you a minute to turn there. Matt, we're not going to go through all of these. I'm going to give you one. Um, and if you have time later, look at some of the others. But Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse number 27. Listen to the pattern. Jesus said in verse uh, 27, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. Stop for a moment. Where did they hear that said? <laughs> they heard that said in the Old Testament. They heard that said by the law given from God through Moses to His people. It was God in the Old Testament who said, you shall not commit adultery. So you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That would be Moses. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? Another one, we're not going to turn there. Another one is, you've heard it said, thou shalt not uh, kill or commit murder. But I say unto you, if you get angry at a man without cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. So notice, Jesus isn't saying it's okay to commit adultery. He's also not saying that it's okay to murder. But He's saying... This is what you've heard, and this is how it's always been with you, but I'm here to take it to the next level. I'm here to explain to you that if you think you've found some loophole in the law, that you're taking things as far as you can go with a, with a woman that's not your wife, who's married to another man, and you can somehow justify that in your mind, he's saying, no, if you've looked upon her to lust after her, uh, in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So, again, where did Jesus get these things of old, said to those of old? He got them from the Old Testament. But He's saying, you've, you've heard that said, now I'm saying. Now I'm saying. Remember, Father God said, this is my Son, listen to Him, hear Him. Also, before we move on from this uh, point, Notice the difference between not committing adultery. This would be something, you know, outward. Don't, don't commit some outward sin. Jesus isn't talking about what you do or don't do outwardly. He's talking about what's going on inwardly. He's talking about the importance, because that's what He came to change, remember. He's talking about what's going on inside of a person. Inside of a person. So you, you take somebody that... that uh, you know, hasn't even followed through on the act, but they've imagined, they've undressed people with their eyes, they've done all, all these things, pornography, what have you. Um, are, are, are we trying to say that that person's heart is okay? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, so, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Um, Luke chapter 16. Jesus speaking again. The law and the prophets were until John... Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, 
and everyone is pressing into it. The law and the prophets were until John. So the law and the prophets, once again, speaking of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that the Old Testaments were until John. This is not speaking of John the Beloved, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was the last, and according to Jesus, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. Now, this is somewhat confusing to people because we don't find John's earthly ministry recorded in the Old Testament. We find John the Baptist's earthly ministry recorded in the New Testament. So although he was recorded and lived in the beginning stages, remember he prepared the way for Jesus. He introduced Jesus. He got the people's hearts ready to hear the message that Jesus was going to preach. And Jesus said that he was the greatest prophet born of a woman. Now, John the Baptist, again, was the last prophet of the old system. But notice what John said in John chapter 3, verse 30. He said these famous words, He must increase, but I must decrease. The he here, obviously, is Jesus. John the Baptist came on the scene and he... Uh, you know, made no small splash. He was very popular. He was very well known. He had disciples, followers, baptized. Only the Lord knows how many people. A baptism of repentance. Um, he was a, a, a mighty prophet in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, and, and so, again, um, Jesus, you got to understand, John the Baptist was well-known, popular, celebrated before people really even knew who Jesus was. And so then Jesus comes on the scene, and if you're watching me on video, if you're listening on podcast, um, I'm, I'm holding you know, my left hand up high and my right hand down low. And if you, if you think of my left hand as John the Baptist's popularity and my right hand as Jesus's, they basically did this, as Jesus' increased, John's decreased. That doesn't mean his importance or his reputation or, or any of that. It just, it just means that there was the ending of one era. Please hear me, that's very important terminology. John represented the passing away, the ending of the old era, the old system, and Jesus represented the beginning of the new. In these two men, John the Baptist and Jesus, we have a transition, a very important transition taking place where the old system is, is, is fading away and the new system is, is coming uh, to light. It's coming on the scene. The old way is, 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 is fading uh, to black, if you will, if you want to use uh, like... Um, Lighting terminology, you know, if you've ever seen lights on a dimmer and you slowly dim, you know, one set of lights and then you gradually bring up, um, you know, another set of lights. John the Baptist represented the lights that were being dimmed and Jesus represents the light 
that was, uh, that was being increased and is still to this day and will forevermore shine brilliantly uh, in this earth and in heaven. So, let's see if we can um, use John the Baptist and Jesus to once again make the point that I fully intend on over... If it is possible to overmake this point, I am going to do everything I can tonight that I know up to this moment and whatever the Holy Spirit may give me that's not in my notes to make this point for you, okay? That the, the, the Old and the New Testament must be correctly divided from one another. We are an explainer of the old. We are ministers of the new. We do not live under the old performance-based system anymore. Thank God, thank my Heavenly Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we now live under this new grace-based approach. Um, and so John the Baptist represents the old. Jesus represents the new. So let's talk about it. John the Baptist represented a system that was going away. Jesus represented a new system that was coming to replace the system that John represented. Okay? Next slide. John was helping people find God. John was helping people find God. Could somebody close that door for me, please? John was helping people find God. Okay? Are you ready? Jesus was God coming to find you. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between John helping people find Him and Him coming to find you. Okay? Now, let's keep going. John preached, turn from sin. Jesus came to take away our sin. John preached, turn from sin. Jesus came to take away our sin. How about this one? John baptized with water. That's why he was called John the Baptist, among other reasons. John baptized with water. Jesus baptized with the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist was the end of an era. He was the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus, as I've already said, marked the beginning of a new era. John's era was one of works, also known as what you do for God. Jesus' era is, not His it was, His is, to this day it still is. Jesus' era is one of grace, based upon what God has done for you. John's era was based upon what you deserve, or we could say what you've earned. I like this word, deserve, so let's stay with it. John's era was based upon what you deserve. Jesus' era is based upon what God desires for you to have. So if you keep it score at home, deserve and desire playing off of one another in this slide. So John's era, again, based upon what you deserve, Jesus' era is based upon what God desires for you to have. I have good news for you tonight. Your Heavenly Father does not want you, He does not want me to get what we deserve. He wants to be able to freely give to you what He desires for you to have. John's era, 
and the old covenant and the performance-based, works-based system could never put a man or a woman in a position to receive from God what God desires for you to have. Jesus' era, this new covenant, New Testament, grace-based, faith-based era in which we now live, puts every born-again believer in position for God to give to you what God desires for you to have. We've already made this point earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat it again. John's era proved the power of sin. Jesus' era proves the power of love. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment how confused people are who do not know how to make this division. I know in my spirit that some of you watching right now, the Lord is setting you free. Because some of you are like, I've, I'm one of those confused people. I don't have to imagine it, Pastor Mark. I've been living it for the last 15 years. Okay, What do I mean by this? Imagine for a moment how confused people are who do not know how to make this division. People who do not understand the difference between the old and the new. One of the greatest problems we have in the church today is so many of God's people are trying to live in the New Testament with an Old Testament mindset, an Old Testament mentality, a traditional, religious, works-based, performance-based approach to having a relationship with God and walking with Him on a daily basis. This is why so many people, if they're having a good, work, a good week, they've read their Bible four out of seven days, they've They've prayed. They haven't cursed anybody out for cutting them off in traffic. They haven't, you know, lost their cool with their family. You know, they feel like, man, they are really, really close to God because they've been such good boys and good girls, you know, this week. Um, compare that to, you know, you've struggled. You've had some issues. You've, you've, you've committed some sin. You've stepped back into some things you said you wouldn't do again, right? And because we have this Old Testament mindset, we think God's mad. We think He's looking for a way to punish us. Um, you know, we feel condemned and threatened and, and, and all of these other things. It's because we don't understand grace. Our hearts have not been established in grace. And, and, and we, we think that because we've struggled in some areas that God's wiped His hands of us and, 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 is, and is through with us and, and when nothing could be further from the truth. All right. Now, we're going to continue to build on this, but... We're going to shift gears a little bit. And let me, let me put a slide up on the screen. This again is a very important point to understand. The revelation of the nature and personality of God is progressive throughout the Scriptures. The revelation, if something is revealed, if, if, if the revelation by revelation means something being revealed, something that's, that's, that's been covered that's, that's, um, that's no longer covered. Uh, something that, that you used to couldn't see, but now it's exposed, it's out in the open for you to see. So when we talk about the revelation of the nature and personality of God, we're talking about the revealing of His true nature, the revealing of His true personality. So again, I'll read the whole slide. The revelation of the nature and personality of God is progressive throughout the Scriptures. What does this mean? It simply means we know more about God as we progress through the Bible. We know more about His nature. We know more about His personality. 
Let me simplify it. We know more about who He is and what He is like as the Bible unfolds from book to book throughout the Old Testament and then on into the New Testament. So when Solomon, for instance, says, and this is why I think some people try to say those scriptures aren't inspired. When Solomon says that life isn't worth living, it's all vanity, it's just a cruel joke that promises you everything, I'm paraphrasing now, only to jerk the rug out from you in the end. The Bible is accurate in the sense that it accurately records what Solomon believed in those moments, but we know now, based upon all we've learned since Solomon's day, that life is worth living if we know how to live it as God has instructed us to live. So this is not to cast stones at what we find in the Old Testament or to say that it's not accurate. Okay, But you also have to remember that these things were based upon the level of revelation that God had released of Himself up until the time of their writing. One of the key things that we see very little of in the Old Testament compared to a whole bunch of in the New Testament is the nature and personality of the devil being revealed. It's Jesus who tells us he's a liar. It's Jesus who tells us he fathered deception. It's Jesus who tells us he is the prince of this world. So I'm not saying that there weren't clues to that in the Old Testament, but these were things that Old Testament writers did not fully understand because Father God had not yet chosen to reveal it to them. So they were writing these things inspired by God, all Scripture given by inspiration, but they were writing them based upon what God had allowed them to know about these things at that point in time. Now, just pray about that if that troubles you, but let the Holy Spirit, and don't look for the letter here, look for the spirit of what I'm saying. Now, let me, let me give you some examples. And by the way, by the way, let me make this abundantly clear. It's not that God changed or morphed throughout the Bible. It's not that God was really mean and, and crotchety and, and aggravated in the Old Testament and He finally mellowed out in the New Testament. No, no, no. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why King David was so far ahead of his time. David wrote about the, the loving kindness of God, the tender mercies of God. We take it for granted that everybody knew that about God in the Old Testament. But really and truly, David was a prophet and wrote things ahead of his time because it's not until the Bible... Again, there's elements of it. We take so much for granted that we understand about God because we have the New Testament lens to look through back on the Old Testament. But those folks were looking ahead. And the Bible says it was like they were looking uh, you know, towards a light that was casting shadows in their direction, but it was hard to make out those shadows. It was hard to, to fully understand and recognize who God truly is and what His nature and personality uh, is, is actually like. But my brother my sister, we are blessed to live in the light that they only had shining in their direction, casting shadows towards them. So when David wrote about the Hasid of God and the loving kindness of God, you know, these things were, 
were just you know, phenomenal in their understanding in nature. Father God ultimately revealing Himself you know, as Abba, Father, Daddy, Amen. Um, they didn't understand Him like that uh, in, in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, they were afraid to use vowels when they wrote His name. And there were times that they wouldn't even speak His name. You know, so again, I'm trying to show you that how God revealed Himself, who He truly is, His nature and personality, it progressive. It is. It progresses. It is progressive throughout the Scriptures. So it's not that He changes. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what has changed is what we know of Him. And that's changed because as things have unfolded throughout human history, where the Bible is concerned, Father has chosen to reveal different characteristics and attributes about Himself. All the way up, getting a little bit ahead of myself, all the way up until the day when He sent Himself in human form to us to live and breathe among us, Jesus Himself. Okay? Now, let me build on this a little more. What we see in the Bible is that God uses many different names to identify Himself. And each new name that He uses, one God, amen, but each new name that He uses to identify Himself reveals something to us about Him that we did not previously know. So again, the cumulative effect of all of this is that we have a concept of a God who um, can raise the dead. Do you realize that Abraham believed God to raise Isaac from the dead before we have any record biblically of God ever raising a human being from the dead? So, you know, at least from where we are looking back on Scripture, and there are modern day examples of people who have been raised from the dead, but, but at least if you don't have those or know of those or even believe those, if you believe the Bible, we see that the Bible... Looking back, we see all kinds of people raised from the dead. But in the early days of Abraham, we have no biblical record of him believing that. Okay? So that's what I mean by we take things for granted. That those folks just simply didn't know about God yet. But as God would give them a new name to call Him, He was not just uh, providing them with something else to say, but He was at the same time revealing something about Himself that was not previously known. Alright, so this section I call 950 Names of God. Just kidding, alright? But, if you would like an exhaustive list, by exhaustive I mean every single one that could be used to identify God in some way in the Bible, there are, no joke, nine. Hundred and fifty. Okay, let me. Um, there's. I wish there was a way I could share the. If you want this link, mark at hccnow.org. You can send it to me. I'll send you the link. You can Google 950 names of God or um, the uh, website that I've put up there, uh, ChristianAnswers.net. Then go forward slash dictionary forward slash uh, names of God. All right, and they have them there uh, in alphabetical order with the biblical references. And it's an awesome resource, right? But think about that now. 950 ways that God has identified Himself to us. I guess we could say that God has a pretty big personality. 
I guess that we could say there are many different aspects and facets of God's nature and qualities and characteristics that He wants us to know about Him, okay? I mean, I don't know about you, maybe you have a nickname, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you have 950 nicknames, all right? 950 names. Now, I'm going to give you a few, all right? And these are a few of my favorite. The first one is um, Jehovah Jireh. And this means the Lord will provide. That's good. Amen. So think about it now. When Father God introduced Himself to His people as, hey, why don't you guys start calling me Jehovah Jireh? What did that mean? They wanted Him to start thinking of Him as, referring to Him as, believing Him to be the Lord who will provide for them. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. How about this one? Jehovah Ra'ah. And this one is, the Lord is my shepherd. Here is another, and this is just a short list of my favorites. Jehovah Rapha. What does Jehovah Rapha mean? Jehovah Rapha means I am the Lord who heals you. I am the Lord your healer. And this is talking about physical healing for your physical body. So until God identifies Himself, he's, in other words, He's saying, this is who I am. This is how I want you to understand me. This is what I want you to know about me. This is a key part of my nature and personality. I'm Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. Let me give you one more. Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu. And this means the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. So back to that passage that we've referenced already a couple of times tonight. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. The Lord our righteousness. We have received His righteousness from Him as a free gift. And the list goes on and on. Let me, um, and for whatever reason, when I was, I know, I say for whatever reason, there is a reason why the Lord prompted me to stick this next point in my notes um, in light of these things, okay? And that is something that my mother and father taught me when I was very young. They taught me that the Lord would be anything and everything to me that I needed Him to be. That there was nothing that I would ever need Him to be in my life that He would not be to me. The Bible says that He'll be things to me like wisdom, okay? Um, you know, prosperity, strength, joy. So there's nothing, there's nothing that you will ever need the Lord to be to you that He will not and cannot and is not to you. This is why He identifies Himself in 950 different ways in the Scriptures. Now, we have in the past sang um, a song that, and I'm not, listen, I'm not bashing the chorus, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful song, 
And it goes something like, I need you more. I need you more than ever before. I need you more today than yesterday. And, and it's a song, you know, clearly expressing our need for and dependence upon the Lord. But this idea that we somehow need Him more today than we did in the past is incorrect. Because in the same way that He doesn't change, what we know about Him does. Our need for Him doesn't change. What does change is our understanding of our need for Him. So you may feel today that you need God today more than at any other point in your life. The reality, my brother and my sister, is that your need for Him has always been absolute. You absolutely need Him, period, in every point, every aspect, every type, anything that has everything to do with you, you need Him. But we have this idea that we need Him more. No, no. Let me say this to encourage you. If you sense that you need Him more today than you've needed Him in the past, that's a pretty good sign that you're growing because what you're realizing is that you need Him, period. And you need Him in every way that He can be to you. All right. Now, let's keep digging ahead. <clears throat> let's do this. I put on the screen, think of the entire Word of God as, and it should be an A in there, as a court system. Think of the entire Word of God as a court system. Now, you may have never heard this explained this way before. Um, I've never heard anybody explain it this way before, but this is how the Lord showed me several years ago to explain it. Because one of the questions that inevitably comes up is if we rightly divide the Word of God and separate the old from the new, what, what do we do with things in the old that seem to contradict things in the new? And, and I used that word, I chose that word carefully, seem to contradict. God doesn't contradict Himself. Okay? And so the Word of God is not in contradiction with itself. All Scripture given by inspiration of God. So it's not that God misspoke in the Old Testament and is now trying to correct it in the New Testament, hoping you won't read the part in the Old Testament that seems to be in conflict with the New. Okay? Wrong way of looking at it. Okay? But go back to what I said a moment ago. There was limited revelation because God it wasn't time for that part of His character, personality, and nature plan to be revealed. So those writers were working with the understanding that they had in that moment. You say, well, wasn't that, didn't understanding come from God? Yes, it did. But that doesn't mean that he revealed. That's why I told you David was a man ahead of his time. He understood things from an Old Testament writer's perspective that wasn't going to be fully revealed and fully confirmed until Jesus showed up here on the earth. That's one of the reasons Jesus is called the son of David. So... This has helped me tremendously. 
is to think of the entire Word of God as a court system. Now when I say a court system, I mean a, you know, a circuit court, a, a district court, um, a court uh, of appeals, um, uh, state courts, federal courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So let's say in a local municipality, a judge rules against a person and that person doesn't feel like the ruling was correct or that the, the, the judge didn't fully understand um, all the you know, different facts in the case. And so what is that person to do? I mean, are they just to go home and, and lump it? No, in our system here in the United States, there's recourse. And that recourse is you can, what, appeal it to a higher court. And so you take your case to a higher court. If that court doesn't give you the, the, the clarification, the understanding that you need um, in, 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 that, you know, in the ruling that you've already received, then you have the opportunity to go to another court and to another court all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Alright, now, when I say think of the Word of God as a court system, I want you to think of the Old Testament as those, as like local courts. So, certainly we, we read and study those because more than anything else, we're looking to find Jesus and, and things that point to Him within those pages. But if you ever read something in the Old Testament that seems confusing to you, okay, what you want to do with it. You want to take it deeper into the Word of God. You want to take it further into what we know to be a progressive revelation of God, a progressive understanding of who God is. Okay? Now, if we think of the Word of God as a court system, then the Supreme Court in the Word of God is everything written in red? What does it mean for something to be written in red? The parts in your Bible written in red are the parts that came directly from the mouth of Jesus Himself. So for instance, you've heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, they had all kinds of ideas of what committing adultery meant. Do you know to this day in the Middle East, you can marry a woman for a night so that you can then go and have sex with her and the marriage will be annulled or divorced in the morning so this person believes in their heart that they didn't sin because they actually took this woman to be their wife for the night. One night of pleasure. and it's so, so you see, right? So let's say you read that and you all these different ideas. Well, let's take it to the Supreme Court. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, marrying her for the night, are you kidding me? If you undress her with your eyes and imagine having sex with her in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. So we appeal anything that seems to be confusing, we bring it to the higher courts for clarification with the Supreme Court being what came directly from the mouth of Jesus. 
Because what we know about the things that came directly from the mouth of Jesus is Jesus Himself said, I don't say anything unless my Father tells me to say it. Now, if there is a Supreme Court, and that Supreme Court is everything written in red, I believe there's also a Chief Justice. In other words, one verse written in red that is at the highest level, if you will, of biblical jurisprudence, if we're using these terminologies, that we should appeal to, in other words, it's, it's the final line drawn. All right? I believe the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Word of God is none other than John chapter 10, verse 10. This is written in red. It's Jesus speaking. And this is what He says. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. Jesus is forever setting the record straight. Jesus is forever letting you and me know that if it's stealing, if it's killing, and if it's destroying, it is of the enemy. But if it is producing life, if it, if it is producing the God kind of life, if it is drawing people to God, if it, is, if it is making people know God better, love God, see all these other things, then He's saying that it is from Him. Wow. Alright, remember what our brother Bill Johnson said. Jesus is perfect theology. If you have any concept of God that doesn't fit with the New Testament life and ministry of Jesus, you have a wrong concept of God. Let me, let me give you an example. I, I said, whatever I have in my notes or what the Holy Spirit may give me. So let me give you another example. We'll talk about this some classes down the road, but I'll bring it up now briefly. Jesus wanted to pass through Samaria. It's kind of like a, think of it as a shortcut. If you was a kid, um, you know, we had some friends that live a few streets over, and if we could cut through the backyards, we could be there in about five minutes, okay? I guess those folks got tired of us cutting through the backyards, so they eventually put fences up. So we just climbed the fence until they asked us not to do that. So we could cut through to my friend's house, you know, in about five minutes, but if we had to walk around, it would take us about 20, 25 minutes. So Samaria was like that. You could take a shortcut through Samaria and get to where Jesus and the disciples were wanting to go um, much quicker. But sometimes the Samaritans were in a bad mood and they wouldn't let you pass through. They would tell you to go around. And on one occasion, Jesus and his disciples were wanting to pass through Samaria to get to a place that they were trying to get to. And the Samaritans said, no, walk around. Well, the disciples, remember, these guys came from the fishing docks, okay? They, some of them did. And they, they, they were, amen, they were men's men. And they were offended. And so they turned to Jesus and they said, Jesus, let's call fire down from heaven upon them right now. Okay, so think about this. These folks, obviously they're being rude and disrespectful to Jesus, but they simply told them that they couldn't pass through their territory and the disciples are ready to burn them all alive. Obviously this is not the right response. But, any idea where the disciples got this idea of calling fire down from heaven? Old Testament. 
Old Testament is where that happened, right? So Jesus says to them, You do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to take life, but to give it. So do you see the distinction here of stealing, killing, destroying versus giving life? Jesus laid that line down for us once and for all. Amen. All right. I'm going to introduce to you very quickly, skillfully applying, and then we'll jump back in here next week. So um, I've got about nine minutes. I'll take about five of them. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 12. I'm so thankful that you're getting some good stuff out of this tonight. I'm so thankful that you have hung in here to the end. I haven't checked the analytics lately, but the last time I checked, people who uh, began to watch uh, the, uh, the class, uh, I think close to 82-83% of the people who were watching were staying with us to the end. So that's exciting. Amen. So skillfully applying, real quick, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 12. We'll look at 13 and 14 as well. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, in this passage, we see the writer of Hebrews refer to a group of people who've been born again, part of the church, members of the body of Christ, for an extended period of time, and long enough where they should be teaching others. They should be ministers of reconciliation and participating in, in that effort. But instead of being teachers and ministers, they need somebody to teach and minister to them again the first principles of the oracles of God. He says, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. Remember, in one of our earlier classes, we talked about the baby needs the milk, and as the baby grows from infant to child, from child to adult, um, the diet changes. And so if we're going to grow in the things of God, we've got to go from milk to meat, and that's a huge part of what an hour and 45-minute class is designed to do. It takes very little effort to fix a bottle, it takes very little effort to drink a bottle, and it takes very little effort to, di to digest a bottle. It takes a lot more effort to prepare uh, meat, it takes a lot more effort to serve and consume meat, and it takes a lot more effort to digest it and for that meat to become a part of you, okay? So, amen. So he says, You've, you have come need of milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So let me stop right here. He didn't say that they were unknowledgeable. That's important. He didn't say, how is it that you've been in the church this long and you don't know anything about the Bible? It's not what he said. As a matter of fact, I would just about guarantee you that these people knew plenty about the Bible. They knew plenty about the Word of God. He didn't say they were babies because they didn't have knowledge. He said they were babies because they had developed no skill. Notice in verse 14, those who by reason of use, meaning what? 
They've taken the Word of God. They've used the Word of God. They've applied the Word of God. It hasn't just been knowledge that they have uh, you know, accrued over the course of their Christian life, but it's things that we're hearing and we're learning how to turn that knowledge into a skill, into a skill set. And that is, my brother and my sister, an entirely different approach. So when we talk about knowing the Bible, we're not just talking about having a knowledge of it. We're talking about having and developing the ability to rightly divide it and then to skillfully apply it. Amen. Let me pray for you tonight. Father, thank you for all that you've given to us, all that you've done for us. Father, thank you for the meat, amen, that you have given and, and made available to us tonight. And I thank you, Father, that, that we have endured. We've taken the time to cut it up into bites and put forth the effort to, to chew it up. And even some of the things that were harder for us maybe to chew that we've heard tonight, uh, we're not going to spit them out, but we're going to keep chewing. And we may have to chew on them for a few days. But Lord, I thank you that as we meditate and chew on these things that the Holy Spirit is bringing revelation of them to our inward man father i thank you for uh just the commitment of those who have uh, joined in this class um man shout out father tonight to those that this is the second third fourth fifth some even more times that they've gone through this class and i just thank you for your hand upon them and for your power and anointing at work in and through them in jesus name amen well praise god good things coming we're very excited while we started in-person Sunday morning worship services uh, some time ago. Um, we have been waiting to get our live stream in the sanctuary uh, online and working effectively before we went, because we had to move out of this room into the sanctuary uh, to live stream on Wednesday nights, but we have that. And so tonight, for the first night in a long time, we're doing live streaming and in-person service here on Wednesday evening. So that's starting here in a few minutes at 7 o'clock. Um, ready for trial part 9, I believe it is tonight. And um, I'm just going to once again encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to access any of those sermons, uh, please do. They're not an hour and 45 minutes. They, they average somewhere between 35, 38 minutes, 45 minutes or so. Um, but I believe it's information that will really, really help you in your, in your, in your walk. Um, again, I would really appreciate it if you could introduce this class to other people, introduce uh, the other sermons on Vimeo and my Facebook or the church website to other people, the Ready for Trial series, what have you. Um, you know, share it uh, if you can. It's, it's one way. If, if, there's, if these classes are benefiting you, then remember a minister of reconciliation is not just in it for what they can get out of it. So begin to develop that. Who, who in my life, who in my family? I had a brother, one of the brothers of the foundry. Uh, he, he told me the other, other morning, he, he said, man, I told, uh, uh, it was a relative. He said, I, I, I told him, um, tune into the class, listen to the class. But if you're only going to listen to one, uh, the, the one about uh, you know, Nicodemus and, 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 uh, and John 3, uh, it really blessed him. And, and so it blessed him. So notice, he's wanting other people. To, to know about it, people that he loves to know about it, hear about it. So if it's making a difference in your life, then share it with people that you also think uh, need to hear it and that it'll make a difference in theirs. Amen. All right. Know that you're loved. Amen. Good things coming. And we will see you next Wednesday.
if not before. Amen. You be blessed.